Welcome to the Parsha Share this week. It's Parsha Svayeshev. And we begin in earnest the story of Yosef, referred to always uh, in the rabbinic works as Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous. He's one of the 12 sons of Yaakov Avinu. Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Meguri Oviv. We're going to be looking at the Parsha through the eyes of Mikdash Halevi. That's my grandfather, Sefer. Rav Yosef Tzvi Halevi Dunar. I have it here on the top of the pile. I, I keep on getting asked about uh, how people can obtain uh, the Sefer. I do put the link on my, on my website. If you press on the words Mikdash Halevi, it will come up with a method of obtaining the Sefer uh, via a website which sells it. Um, I get nothing from it, so it, it's, not, uh, it's not me pitching uh, f- for the sale of a particular book, but I know that people uh, enjoy the Sefer very much and would like to have a copy for themselves, so that's the way to obtain it. Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megure Oviv. And Yaakov Vayeshev means he, he settled. He lived there in a sort of settled way, but it's kind of a permanent settling. Be'eretz Megure Oviv in the land, in the place where his his uh, fathers, or his father and his grandfather, had lived in a kind of less permanent setting, in a more temporary way. The word Megure comes from the word Ger. Um, and he lived in Eretz Canaan, Be'eretz Canaan, and Rashi has a very interesting comment on this pasuk. Perish Rashi, Beshem Medrash Rabbah. And he's quoting a Medrash. The Medrash Rabbah says as follows, Vayeshev Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Beshalva. Do you know what Vayeshev means? It means that Yaakov Avinu wanted to live in tranquility. He wanted to have peace and tranquility in his life. Kofatz alav Yosef, says the Medrash, as a result of which, you know what was thrust upon him? The episode, the dreadful episode of Yosef, Yosef being sold into slavery and disappearing from his life for decades. Tzadikim mevakshim leishev b'shalva, continues the Medrash. The righteous ones seek to live in peace and tranquility. Do you know what God says to them? It's not enough for tzaddikim that everything is prepared for them in the ultimate destination, in Olam Haba, in heaven. They also want to live in Shalva, in tranquility, in Olam Hazer, in the material world. So God doesn't allow for tzaddikim, people like Yaakov Avinu, to live in tranquility. That's the message of the Medrash quoted by Rashi on this posuk, Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Meguri Oviv. We're going to look at what the Mikdash HaLevi says. And he, and he has an obvious question, and he addresses it beautifully. He frames it so well, and then he delivers a perfect answer. It's an absolute wonder. We've got to we've got to be extremely puzzled, he said. If we think about it, what type of shalva? What is the kind of tranquility? How would you how would you describe or define the shalva that the Ovesakadoshim that our saintly ancestors, the forefathers, the Ovesakadoshim, the patriarchs, what was the type of shalva that they sought for themselves? There's absolutely no doubt. You can't can't suggest for a moment that Yaakov Avinu wanted to retire and go and play golf. That wasn't his intention here. When we use this word shalva, tranquility, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that we have no responsibilities. We can do as we please. We can go on vacation, on a holiday whenever we want. We can have a wonderful time. Can you imagine? You never have to worry about any bills to pay. You can, you can go to the most wonderful locations, stay in the best hotels, eat the finest food, no health problems, nothing. That's the shalva that we would seek. That's the type of shalva if we were to ask, we were, we were asked to define shalva for ourselves, that is the type of shalva that we would seek. But we're not talking about you and me. 
we're talking about Yaakov. Yaakov, if it's true to say that the word Vayeshev connotes the idea of Shalva, that he wanted to live in tranquility, what is it trying to convey? Shalva Ruchanis, a spiritual tranquility. Ashem Ashma do you know what it's about? Do you know what Yaakov Avinu wanted? Whatever that may mean in the, in the context of Yaakov Avinu, but if you can imagine a tzaddik today when he wants Shalva to be able to devote all his time to the study of Torah, to the pursuit of spiritual greatness, of spiritual experiences, without having to worry about health, without having to worry about financial obligations, all of those things being taken care of, all things being equal, the shalva of a tzaddik is obviously going to be limutat Torah b'menuchas ha-nefesh b'harchovas hadas. Elo, shemeato yipole, if that's the case, what's going on here? Machi soren yesh b'she'ifo me'enzu. What exactly is the problem with having that as an aspiration? Why would God want to thwart this particular aspiration when it comes to those who are righteous, as the Medrash goes on to say? And the example that we are obviously focusing on is the example of Yaakov Avinu. This terrible episode, this story, which was a complete and utter overturning of his tranquility. I mean, it was the opposite, the polar opposite of tranquility. It was, it was chaos. It was disaster. Really? That's what Hashem wants when they have the she'ifa, the aspiration for shalva? That's what you're doing to Yaakov Avinu? What exactly, what's negative about having that as an aspiration that Hashem wants to step in and throw a spanner in the works? To worship, to be in the service of Hashem in peace and tranquility in, 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 in a nice and an undisturbed setting. In a state of total submergence in Torah and in the, in the service of God. Why would Hashem step in and thwart that? Why would He undermine that aspiration? That's the question of the Mikdash Alevi. It would appear it's well known that which Chazal, the sages of the Talmud, taught us. Do you know what the Ovois HaKadoshim were doing? Not just them, of course, the Imahois as well. What did our patriarchs, our forefathers, Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov, do all day and all night? What was the, what was the purpose of their life? They were monotheists in a world that was pagan and polytheistic, idol-worshipping God-deniers. They were being Megayer Geirim. They were finding people, talking to them, convincing them of the existence of God and turning them into people who would worship God and who would acknowledge God's existence and do what needs to be done as a result of that information. Their intent and their purpose, the central theme of their lives was to bring people into the tent of the Spirit of God. And to bring knowledge of God and, and the acknowledgement of God's existence to the entire world. That was what they did. They woke up in the morning. That was their purpose. That was their job. That was their intention. That's what they were going to do all day and all night. And now we're going to quote a beautiful Rambam. It's in Hilchus Avodas Kechovim. It's in the in the first Perek Halacha Gimel. 
These are the words of the Rambam. Listen carefully. Hischil Avraham, Abraham began, to stand up and to declare in the loudest possible voice for everyone to hear. Says the Rambam, Avraham Avinu's purpose, he was singular, devoted, he had a one-track mind. All he wanted was for people to know of the existence of God and that they needed to worship him and to be in his service. He went and he promoted and he gathered the people. Meir Le'iri went from city to city. From one kingdom to another, from one region to another. Ad until eventually he got from Urkastim via Choron to Eretz Kanaan. And seeing as the nations or the people that he managed to attract, what well, I mean, he became their guru, he became their oracle because he had inspired them with the knowledge of God. He would deal with each one individually, do whatever he could to convince them of the truth of what he was saying, and each at their level would accept it, and he brought them back to the true way. He brought under his wing so many people, hundreds, thousands of people, who became God-believers as a result of the work and the investment that he put into them. They became known as the Anshe Beis Avraham. They were the people from the house of Avraham. He transplanted into their heart this incredibly foundational, this incredible foundational principle. The Chiber Boisvarim, and he wrote books about it, whatever it was that one needed to write in those days to convey this information. He became the foundational monotheist in all of history from here he is the root of monotheism that's what Avraham Avinu is that's who he was says the Rambam that was his purpose in life and that's what he did now he gave it over to his son Isaac to Yitzchak and Yitzchak took this information and he taught it he illuminated it for Yitzchak Adiali Yaakov, and guess what? Yitzchak took that information and he passed it on to Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov was the next one in the chain. Umminahu lelamed, and he designated Yaakov Avinu to teach it further. The Yoshev melamed umachzik kol anilvim elov, and indeed he 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 taught and he strengthened all those who were connected to him. The Yaakov Avinu Lomad Bonov Kulom, he taught all his children. The Hivdil Levi, Uminahu Roish, he designated Levi, chose him, he specified that Levi would become the teacher for all time of Torah values, of whatever it means to be a monotheist, to be a believer in Hashem. Vaishiva be Yeshiva Lelame Derech Hashem, the Lishmer Mitzvah Avraham. So the idea was that it went from generation to generation, says the Rambam, that it began with Avraham, the great monotheist. He conveyed it to Yitzchak. Yitzchak gave it over to Yaakov. Yaakov asked Levi to continue, and so it has gone on. Moshe Rabbeinu, obviously from Shevet Levi, became the great teacher of Klal Yisrael after Kabbalah's HaTorah. And we have the Torah because of this idea that Tzadikim, like Avraham, like Yitzhak, like Yaakov, like Levi, like Moshe, spent their entire lives, committed themselves completely and entirely to the propagation of Torah, to the propagation of the message of monotheism, that the world doesn't exist by mistake, that there's no such thing as idols, there's no such thing as intermediaries, there is one God, and everything that happens is as a result of that God. So as a result of what I've just said and what we hear from the Rambam, that the entire Shi'ifa, the, the designated purpose of their lives, do you know what it was? 
umurkeves bashovas libam shakogoya oritz lemuna bashem yisborach. Do you know what their purpose was? They were ambassadors for monotheism. They were the ones who carried this torch and passed it on from generation to generation in the method described by the Rambam. They were the ones who taught people in whatever way that they could that Hashem exists and it's important for the continuity of the world for us to believe in God. That's what God wants from us, to believe in Him, to have faith in Him and to be connected to Him. What is the Avoida of Avraham Yitzhak, Yaakov and Levi as mentioned by the Rambam? It's, it's not for themselves, it's for the Klal, it's for everybody. It's for anybody that they could come into contact with. The whole idea is to do whatever they can to create a tikkun, to bring back those who have drifted, to convince those who are deniers that God exists. And that was the purpose of, of Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov. That's, that was the, the central theme of their lives. That's why they got up in the morning. That's why they ate. That's why they talked to people. That's everything that they did. Now we can understand the end of his life. Yaakov Avinu said, you know what? I've done this all my life. I'd like to live in tranquility. He said, you know, I've done enough with everybody else. Now I want to focus on myself. I'd love to do something which is for my own personal spiritual journey, my own personal spiritual growth. I don't want to be distracted by all the uh, public obligations that have been thrust upon me in my position as the ambassador of faith in the world. He'd experienced it for a moment. When Yitzhak was still alive, he'd experienced it in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. When he was running away from Esau, on his way to the house of Lovon, he'd sat in yeshiva of Shem and Ever, completely divorced from the realities and the, and the demands of the real world. For 14 years, He'd studied in that yeshiva. That's what he wanted again. He was, for 14 years, he was sitting in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever, not having any connection with anybody in the outside world, totally able to devote himself to spiritual growth. He didn't have to worry about anything at all. I mean, it's, it's self-understood. Any one of us who's had the opportunity of studying in a yeshiva, we've, we've had this opportunity. We've been able to do it. We, we really, we craze after this, this incredibly elevated feeling. This, I mean, come on. It's an amazing possibility and opportunity. When you sit in yeshiva, you don't have to worry about anything. You have meals three times a day. You have a bed to sleep in. You have somebody giving you the shir. You have all the svarim you need. You can sit and you can study. Everybody craves for the time when they had in their lives when they could just devote it to Nothing else but the thing that they wanted to do, which was to elevate their knowledge, to know more and to do better in their intellectual pursuits and in their spiritual pursuits. That's a wonderful experience. We would all like to be able to do that for the remainder of our lives. But unfortunately, reality steps in and we have to face and embrace that reality. It would appear that the word Vayeshev connotes and and gives us the information regarding Yaakov's aspirations at that moment in time, that he would have liked to be able to divorce himself from the realities and the problems of the world, and from his previous um, attempts to bring as many people, as we saw with Avraham and Yitzchak, 
He's now an older person who he wanted to de- dedicate the, all the time that he had left for himself to the, his own elevation in terms of his spiritual journey. And to be no longer involved in public work, in working with the public to elevate them. He wanted to elevate himself. He wanted to hand that over to his children so that they could take that work and carry it forward. God demonstrated that the tranquility and to be able to study and to, to apply yourself in that way in terms of Menuchas HaNefesh that's what the Medrash says. That's something that's not going to happen in Olam Hazer in this world. It's something that's designated in terms of Olam Habo, the world to come. Oz At that moment in time, Tzadikim will be able to sit and their crowns will be on their heads, the crowns of Torah, the crowns of their tzidkos, their, their righteousness will be on their head. They were able to immerse themselves in Torah. But unfortunately in this real material world where things don't go so smoothly and there's a problem around every corner. Do you know what they have to do? They have to dedicate themselves to all the problems that they're going to encounter and that is their duty, that is their obligation. Do you know what tzaddikim have to do in this world? What is it? Do you know what God wants from them? What does God want from a tzaddik? They have to spend their whole lives learning, but then they also have to teach. They have to take it to the next stage. They have to, they have to um, influence other people from their the uh, wellspring of their Torah that is their duty that is their obligation until their final day Yosef is dispatched by his father Yaakov he sends him off to Shechem to meet his brothers to see where they are to give them a message to spend time with them. Yaakov doesn't seem to be so concerned about the fact that Yosef's brothers don't like him. Perhaps he didn't know. Perhaps he did know, but thought that this would be a way of reconciling them. Whatever the case may be, they spotted him from afar. They saw him walking towards them. And even before he got there, they decided they made a plot to get rid of him. That's what the Possek said. They wanted to kill him. Parshas Mechiras Yosef, says the Mikdash Alevi. This episode of the sale of Yosef, this whole moment in time, this day in the life of Yosef and his brothers, it's a dreadful episode. Something that's very, very hard for us to understand, to appreciate, to really get our heads around. We know that these brothers, these holy brothers, we refer to them as Shiftei Ka, the, uh, the tribes of God. They were at the most elevated level, completely beyond our comprehension. We're not able to understand the level that they were at. They were such tzaddikim. Mi'ata. If that's the case. How are we able to get an understanding, any kind of understanding, as to how such righteous people, such tzaddikim, would sell their brother into slavery? That's going to be the focus of this quite lengthy piece in the Mikdash Halevi. 
We know that everything that the Shavuotim did, that the ten brothers did, in terms of what ended up as the sale of Yosef, they did it according to their understanding of what was just and what was justified. If that's the case, it's, it's worthwhile attempting at least to clarify what was, the, what was the central idea here. What were they thinking? I mean, they were obviously discussing among themselves what they should do, what the law was with regard to their brother, how they should treat him. What was it? How did they reach the verdict that what they were doing was correct? Ulam and even before that, We really need to understand, even before we get to the crux of the matter, which was that day when they sold Yosef, why it was that they had this dispute, this disagreement. What was the underlying um, controversy that generated the animosity between Yosef and his ten brothers. She came by Pasuk Muzka by Mefurish Ki Yosef, Hoyomavias di Bosom Sharachim Ro'o Elaviem. So we know from the Pasuk that Yosef used to say things about his brothers to their father, to Yaakov, referred to as Dibosom Ro'o, bad things about them. Ulam Lonis Bar by Mefureshes, Eza Dibo Hovi Yosef El Yaakov. We don't know exactly what it was that was bad that Yosef said about his brothers to their father, what it was that was negative about the information that he conveyed to his father about his brothers. Ulam Pratze, but as it happens that this particular detail, Mufurish Bachazal, Chazal do convey to us what it was that Yosef said, or potentially there's three opinions, as to what it was that Yosef brought as a Dibora'o to his father. And we're going to quote the Medrash now. It's in Bereshis Rabba, Peidalad Zayin. Vayova Yosef es dibosom ro'o. What was it? Ma Omar, Rebmei Omer. Rebmei's opinion is as follows. Chashudin heim bonecha al ever min hachai. There is a prohibition eating meat that has been cut from a live animal. That's something which is considered to be brutal, and it's one of the Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach, actually. And Yosef HaTzadik said to his father, Unfortunately, my brothers are not makbid in this. They eat ever min hachai. They eat animals um, before they have died. They just cut off whatever it is, and they cook it and eat it, and the animal is still alive. That's the first thing, the first opinion as to what the Dibarah was that Yosef brought to his father. Reb Shimon Omer, Reb Shimon has a different opinion. Apparently, the Shavotim wanted to marry local girls, and that Yosef considered to be a grave error of judgment and a sin. And he told Yaakov Avinu, listen, they're going to marry people here from Canaan, and that's a bad thing. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Mezalzalin bivnei hashafochais v'koyin lahem avodim. In this particular case, we're talking just about the six children of Leah. Apparently, according to Yosef, they don't treat the children of the concubines of Bilhah and Zilpah. They are not treated well by the other six brothers, and that's what Yosef conveyed to his father. The Eishla Ein B'shitotish or Rabbeah, the Mikdash Alevi is going to focus on the opinion of Rabbeah, who discusses um, the uh, sin of Ever Min Hachai in the context of the brothers and what Yosef told his father. What did he tell his father? Yosef said to his father, My brothers are eating Ever Min Hachai. They are doing something which is terribly wrong because they're not waiting for the animal 
to die, they just cut off a piece of meat and they eat it even while the animal is still alive. Shekain borur lechalutin. It is, we can be absolutely certain. There can be no doubt. Shedvarov shel Yosef atzadik loyoyo mushuloli yusoid. There, you, ca- you can't for a moment suggest that what Yosef was saying was lacking in foundation. It's not as if we would ever accuse Yosef Atzadik of lying. It must have been something that he saw that would make him think that way. It's not something he would make up. He wouldn't come to his father and suggest that his brothers had committed this grave sin. That, it's just not possible. Borogam, from the other hand, on the other hand, we could, but it's absolutely certain. We can't suggest for a moment that the ten brothers would be so reckless as to consume Eva Minhachai. You can't accuse the brothers of having done an Avera. So clearly Yosef hadn't done anything wrong because he thought that they had been over. They had uh, transgress this prohibition of Eva Menachai. On the other hand, we know for certain that the, that the Shavotim would not have committed this terrible sin, and therefore we need to understand what's going on here. There was some foundational disagreement here between the Shavotim on the one hand and Yosef on the other. Says the Mita Shalevi, that's what I would like to explain. A very interesting um, piece of information here about what it was that was the disagreement, the foundation of the disagreement between Yosef and his brothers. There was a disagreement about whether or not they are considered in the current time, they lived in their time, long before Kabbalah Satorah, long before we had received the Torah at Mount Sinai, it's hundreds of years earlier, whether or not they are considered to be B'nai Noyach, or whether they are considered to be um, people who have to observe the Torah. That's the foundation of the disagreement. Because they are now the children of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the children of Yaakov and the descendants of the other two Avos, whether or not they're no longer B'nai Noach, but now they are B'nai Yisrael, V'nichnusu Din Yisrael, Gemurim. They are now considered total Jews. Hamuchuyovim ach v'rak ha-Torah Their only obligation is to observe the mitzvahs of the Torah, obviously in any way that they can, but knowing by Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit, what is contained in the Torah, what is expected of them by Torah law, do, are, they, um, are they expected to observe those laws? We know that one of the seven prohibitions that have been uh, given to the Bnei Noach, to everybody who's alive after Noach was saved from the Mabel, Bnei Noach means everybody in the world has to observe seven laws. One of those seven laws is Eva Menachai. You're not allowed to be brutal and animalistic. You're not allowed to eat from an animal while it's still alive. But that doesn't mean that they have to do shechita, which is the ritual slaughter method of the Jewish people, that we use a slaughter knife and, and uh, the slice through the neck, through the esophagus um, and through the, um, through the breathing pipe. Every part of the neck is cut all the way to the spine and through the blood vessels so that there is absolutely no chance that the animal is still alive. That's the method of shechita we do, and we do it with a very, very sharp knife so that the animal doesn't feel any pain as it's being killed. That's the method by which a kosher animal has to be rendered dead so that it can be consumed by those who are Jewish. That's, we know it. That's, it's called shechita. It's a whole mesechta in, in Talmud, uh, in the Gemara about it. It's called meseches chulin. And it teaches us what we need to do in order to render an animal kosher uh, in the context of us being able to consume meat. 
But Bnei Noach don't have these halachas. They don't have to do shechita. Hein omnam, heim einam mugbolim lederech musiyemes ba yergo esabahim abeterm yacheluha. They're not limited to the method of killing the animal before they eat it. Ulam heim mechuyovim levada shebeis achilas basar habahim hitiye mesa lechalutin. The only thing they have to do is, however they kill the animal, they have to make sure that the animal is completely dead before they eat it. Bederek for example, the, I mean, one example of the method of killing, and by the way, this method still exists, is called nechira, which means they pierce the blood vessel through the neck, and the blood, and then the animal bleeds out, and that is sufficient. They don't have to, they don't have to worry about it causing any pain. They don't, they don't have to do shechita. Simply, the method of nechira is uh, okay when it comes to ben noach. That's a killing of a behema, of an animal, not through the method of shechita, not through the method I described earlier. And Bnei Noach are permitted to eat an animal on that basis. Of course, they're not allowed to eat the animal, because of Eva Menachai, while the animal is still alive. Okay, so now we're going to have a difference that is a technical difference, that is, uh, that has a leniency when it comes to Jewish people, and it's stringent, stricter, when it comes to Bnei Noach. When it comes to Jewish people, Obviously, no Jewish person can eat an animal that's killed using the Nechira method. They have to slaughter the animal according to the very specific laws that, that are contained um, originally. Now in the Shulchan Aruch, we know that. By the way, it's complicated. You have to make sure that the animal is killed in that very specific method. However, at that very moment, when the knife slices through the neck of the animal, and the animal has now had whatever it is that needs to be severed in the neck severed, immediately, you can cut off a piece of meat and you could eat it, theoretically. I mean, obviously, that's not what we do. Theoretically, you could do it. Even if the animal is still convulsing, which very often, due to a nervous reaction, of the nervous system, after an animal has had oxygen, uh, the oxygen supply removed from the brain, the, the, as a result of that, the animal will convulse, and it appears, it can, you can look at it, it seems like it's alive, but it doesn't mean it's alive. It's still convulsing. A Jewish person can eat meat from an animal that has, is still convulsing. Now you're going to see the difference between the Shavotim, the Shiftei Ka, and, um, and Yosef. The Shavotim, the children of Yaakov, Avinu, of Leah, and Bilhan Zilpah, imagined that they are like Jews, they're like Yisrael. And therefore they are obligated in Shechita. I mean, even though that uh, um, the Torah wasn't given, they still need to do Shechita on an animal. And on that basis, once they've taken upon themselves this identity of being a Yisrael and not a Ben Noach, they can eat the animal immediately after Shechita, even if it's still convulsing. On the other hand, Yosef Sovar, even though it's true that the forefathers, the patriarchs, took upon themselves all the obligations of the Torah even before it had been given, they hadn't yet received the Torah. They had taken on an obligation of a future document that was going to be given to their descendants, but they haven't received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And on that basis, the, I mean, they may take on the stringencies, but the leniencies are not something that they can adopt. They can only adopt the stringencies, not the leniencies. Therefore, Yosef thought to himself, 
Of course, my brothers, if they want to, they can take on the dinim of the Torah. That's what they want to do. I'm not saying they need to do it, but if that's what they want to do, they can certainly do that and do shechit on an animal, as is expected, uh, through the dinim that are given to us in the Torah. Ulam. However, they can't now take upon themselves the leniency of the laws that apply to Jewish people by eating meat from an animal that uh, remains convulsing. Even if they did the shechita, the slaughter on it, was according to the din, dinim of the Shulchan Aruch, the hal- halochas that we know from the Shulchan Aruch. Nevertheless, they can't take upon themselves the leniency of eating the meat from a convulsing animal. Nim and therefore we see, Now we can see the foundation of the misunderstanding here. According to the brothers of Yosef, who said that we are now like Yisrael, Yosef is eating nevelos. He's eating something which hasn't had proper shechita because it's only had nechira. Sharehu matir basa nechira kedin because he says, I'm still a ben noach. I don't consider your um, self-imposed stringency as to uh, something that I need to take upon myself. You want to do it, that's up to you. I think that we can still eat basar from meat from an animal that has had the Nechira method of killing. Le'umasam, but now from the other perspective, despite anything that they considered to be right, Yosef sova ki echav oichlim evaminachai. Yosef looks at it from a totally different perspective. You're b'nei noyach. Do you know what you're doing? You're eating Avram in Achai, you're eating meat from an animal that's still alive. They didn't wait for the animals to stop convulsing after they'd killed them through Shechita. They didn't wait for it to be completely still so that it would be completely permitted as it would be for Ben Noach. So Yosef looks at them as having done something wrong and they look at Yosef as having done something wrong. That is the foundation of the disagreement. That was the argument the controversy between the Holy Brothers. And now we're going to look with further detail as to how the brothers reacted and how they felt justified in what they were doing in terms of their verdict against the brother for the fact that he had told their father about something they had done which they felt they hadn't done wrong. And they did it with reciprocity. Obviously according to their understanding of events. If you know the Medrash says, The first thing that they did when the brothers saw Yosef from far away, you know what they did? They unleashed, they set upon him a, a, a pack of dogs. It would appear that the explanation for this is, that which the Posuk says. You know, the Posuk says, it's a Posuk uh, later, it's in Shemois. Um, if there is a, an animal that died, obviously an animal dies in the field, it cannot be eaten by Jewish people. What do you do with it? It's a trefar animal lying in the field. You're not allowed to eat it. You have to give it to the dogs. That meat is designated for dog food. That's what happens to a trefar animal. It's given to the dogs. But Posuk Mefurish, and we see here in the Posuk, it's the benefit of dogs, to receive uh, meat that is forbidden because it's nevela or a trefar. It's forbidden for Jews. But they are the ones for whom it is designated. What happens to those who take the novella away from the dog and don't let the dog eat it? You know what? They've done something wrong. And they have to be punished for the fact that the dogs haven't been able to eat meat that belongs to them. And therefore, 
That's why the brothers, they thought that Yosef eats novelas. He's eating meat that he's not permitted to eat. That meat belongs to the dogs. He's removing animal fodder. He's, he's preventing the dogs from eating that which belongs to them. He's depriving them of their food. Therefore, the reciprocity here is, you know what it is? Let's set the dogs on him. So that they can take that which belongs to them. That was their sense of justice here. Somehow it's a little warped, but they felt that he is stealing meat from the dogs. Let the dogs pay him back for what belongs to them to get justice for themselves. We find there's another medrash. That the brothers removed the four garments that Yosef was wearing. It's very interesting. It's an interesting medrash. Bracious Rabbah. They stripped their brother Joseph. Um, the first thing the Posik says, Yosef, Zahapinos. Do you know what that is? That's the Aderes, the cloak. Eskutontoi. Zecholok, that's his tunic. Esksoines pasim hapasim zehapargoi, that's the outer tunic. Ashe olov, the final uh, phrase of the posuk. Ashe olov zu pamalanyo sheloi. This is his uh, trousers, his breeches, his pants. The gam kan doimeki yecholim onu limtois hanhogas hamidok keneged midah, and through this medrash we can discover the midok keneged midah, the reciprocity that the brothers were meeting out in terms of justice to their brother. Shekeno achem asher she Yosef mevis dibosam ralabiem. The brothers were trying to calculate, to work out, to to really understand what it is that was motivating Yosef to bring the Dibarah to his father. He was the eldest son of Rachel, the favorite wife, and therefore they thought to themselves, he wants to have the Bechairah, he wants to be considered the firstborn child because he's the oldest son of the favorite wife. We can see that clearly, this is what the brothers are thinking to themselves, from the dreams which he'd had and which he believed to be showing that he was going to be the master over his brothers, that he was in charge and they were bowing down to him. And as we know, Ad lechet ha'egel until the sin of the golden calf. Haysa avoidas hakarbonus bebchoyros v'lo bekanim. Do you know who did the sacrifices in a family? It was always the oldest son. That was the duty of the oldest son. They were considered the priests of the family, and it wasn't a priestly class. We know that they came from from Shevet Levi, but that was much later after the story of the golden calf of the egel. And we know that Kohanim wear four items of clothing. Why did the um, Kohanim wear four items of clothing? Because that was somehow connected to the four items of clothing that the firstborns wore when they brought sacrifices um, and that they, they were serving the family through their duty in terms of uh, sacrificial offerings that were brought. If, as the brothers imagined, that the purpose and intent of Yosef by bringing this Loshon Horad, as they saw it, to their father, uh, was so that he should be considered the Kohen of the family and not the true Bechoyer, which was Reuven, therefore, that means who evil atzmayis arbaas big day kahuna. That do you know what it means? He craves these four items of clothing that are designated for a kohen to wear. Keneged zois hifshi tuhu ha'achim me arbaas habegodim shalavash. That's why the brothers removed these four items of clothing that he was wearing as a symbolic gesture to remove this fantasy that they felt that he had, that he should be the Kohen of the family and not the true Kohen, which at that stage was Reuven. 
we find elsewhere. What's the story? They threw Joseph, they threw him into a pit. And what does the Pasuk say? They threw him into the pit, and the pit was empty, it had no water. And the Chazal, Chazal who look at this Pasuk, they derive from it as follows. Why does the Pasuk tell us that the pit was empty and it had no water? Surely, through the fact that it says that the boyer was empty, surely we know from that that it had no water in it. So what's the point of telling us that the boyer was rake and aim by mayim? Ella, mayim aim by, there was no water in it. There was um, snakes and scorpions in it. So the second the latter part of the posuk is to convey another piece of information. That means that the brothers threw Yosef into a pit that was full of snakes and full of scorpions. And through this we can understand it's very simple to see. If he is somebody who has bad speech in his mouth, he's somebody who's brought to their father, he has to somehow be punished in a way that's going to convey the sin through the punishment. What is it? Uh, sorry, uh, it has to be via snakes. Because snakes symbolize the idea of loshen ra, of bad speech. Because we know that the first um, creature that is designated in the Torah as having spoken badly was the Nochosh when he convinced Chava that she should eat from the Eitz Hadas Toivorah. That's why they threw him into the pit full of snakes so that the person who was a bad speaker or speaker of bad things should suffer as a result of that designated creature, which is so connected to the concept of Loshain Hora'a. Nimtso Efoi, ki dinom shalachim lefishitosom. We can see here that the brothers felt entirely justified based on their calculations, based on their logic. Hoyo din emes, that it was absolutely true justice. Carefully calculated and calibrated in the best possible way, reciprocity in the way that it should be. And therefore, it's an interesting posuk in the Haftorah that we read for Parshas Vayeshev. It's in Amos, Perik Base, Posuk Vav. The Posuk says, This is what Hashem says, On three sins of Israel. But on the fourth, I shall not revoke it. On their sale of a tzaddik for money and a poor man because of his shoes. It's an interesting posuk. You can look it up in Amos. There's many different interpretations of the posuk. Here, the Mikdash Alevi has a very specific interpretation. The first part of the posuk speaks about three, and then it goes on to talk about four. That which we've already explained earlier. If we look at that, we can understand this posuk. We know that the four brothers did four, sorry, the um, ten brothers did four bad things to Yosef in terms of the way they treated him and what they did that day. They let loose the dogs on him. They took off and stripped him of four items of clothing. They threw him into a pit that was full of snakes and scorpions. And they sold him into slavery. Says the Migdash HaLevi, 
um, from this we can um, explain and we can say as follows do you know what God was saying to the Jewish people on the first three of the bad things that the Shvatim did to Yosef they set the dogs on him they took his clothes off and they threw him into the pit. I can forgive that. That's forgivable on the first three. However, on the fourth one, on the fact that they sold him into slavery, on that, I cannot possibly ever forgive them. That was beyond the pale. That was crossing a red line. Why would that be the case? If we were to ask any one of us, which was the, of all the things that the brothers did, the four things that the brothers did to Yosef, what's the worst? We're going to say, let's compare the two. Throwing him into a pit full of snakes or selling him into slavery, which one's worse? For sure, we're going to tell you that throwing him into a pit full of snakes is much worse, much more terrible than selling him into slavery. As a result of that, he's really his life is in genuine danger, in grave danger. He might die. The snake might bite him and kill him. Sending him into slavery, okay, I mean, it's not particularly nice, but it's not like being killed by a snake. Also, setting the dogs on him. That really puts his life in danger. It's much worse than sending him into slavery. In which case, why is it, according to this interpretation, that it's only for selling him into slavery that there is no slicha, that there is no forgiveness for the brothers? But for the other three terrible things that they did to him, they are forgiven. If you think about it, actually the sale of Yosef into slavery itself, for sure it's, it's less dreadful in a sense than the other things that the brothers did to him. If you weigh up all the different things that we've discussed, everything that goes into the decision that was made in every one of those four cases, the fact is, it's much, much worse. Because of all the four things that they did, that was the one that was entirely unjustified, even according to their own logic. I'll tell you that all four weren't justified, but there was some warped logic that motivated them to do the other three. But this, there was no logic to it. There was no justification for it. We know that there was a specific... Um, claim that they had against Yosef, which motivated them to do what they did. L'shem Shamaim, as far as they were concerned, they were doing it um, for, for God. They were somehow motivated by a higher purpose. V'adin Ashedonus Yosef, and the judgment by which they judged him. And every aspect of it, as far as they were concerned, was reciprocal, based on something he had done to them, that they were now returning in the form of punishing him. Even though we know that the brothers were mistaken in their calculations, and even though we know that they shouldn't have done what they did, and he wasn't worthy, Yosef should not have been treated in the way he was treated by them. He should certainly not have been given the punishments that they thought were punishments, but which were not, which were just harsh measures that they were executing against him. We could still say, you know what? Even though I think they're wrong, I get it why they were doing it. Because... In essence, even though they had a terrible bias of hatred, they somehow could justify their actions on the basis of some narrative that they had put together. 
אולם לאחר שרו אחים שלוש פעמים שהכלובים ששיסו באחיהם לא יפוגו בו לרו. I mean, let's think about it. What happened the first three times? They set the dogs on him, and they do nothing to him. They don't, know, you don't touch him, they don't bite him, they don't do a thing to him. That's a miraculous event. Even when they strip him naked, he's vulnerable. Nothing happens to him. He's still okay. Everything is fine. He's still going strong. They throw him into a pit. He's there for how, who knows how long. And no snake bites him. And no scorpion stings him. By that time they should have realized, uh, excuse me, all our justifications seem to be mistaken. Because not, no harm is coming to him. Yosef must be right. And we must be wrong. which they should have been moide. They should have admitted that they were wrong. They should have admitted that they had made a mistake. But if it's the case, and that's the case, they didn't do that. They didn't admit that they were wrong. They continued on the path that they had begun. And they went to the next stage. They went a step further. And sold him into slavery. On that basis, on the fourth one, as it says in the Posuk in Amos, it was the fourth one that shows you who they are, that they had done something wrong. And that is a very powerful negative claim against them. That couldn't be forgiven. Hashem says, that's not something that we can just dismiss. We can't revoke it. The Shamaimi, and that is worthy of heavenly punishment. We leave it here for today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you.